Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Did you have a crazy morning? Did I have a crazy morning? Well, let me just, um, I'm going to text you. Uh-oh. Ugh, this is what my morning has been. The bird followed you to Texas? Oh, my gosh. It's a tiny puppy. Where did you find this little fellow? Um, well, she was at the pound. Gal. She was a stray. Oh, my gosh. You got a pandemic puppy. Yeah, I mean, she's large, but she is young. Okay. Actually, we don't know how old. I think she, basically an exciting question. She's 53 pounds and large already. Wow, that's great. What is her name? I, well, I'm working on it. I'm not ready to, I'm trying things out. I'm not ready to. So they don't know her name already? No, she was a stray. Ah, poor thing. So good of you to adopt. Welcome to the world of pandemic, pandemic large puppy. Um, Yeah, maybe full grown dog, maybe puppy. Will she be 100 pounds? We don't know. Yeah, that's crazy. It's going to be exciting to find out. 100 pounds is a large dog. How impractical. She's a great Pyrenees, they think, which is huge. Oh. Like one of the biggest dogs. (laughs) The horse-sized dogs? Yeah, they're enormous. Wow, interesting (laughs) decision. When you come back to New York, too, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyway, yes, Jim, my morning was taken up with, uh, you know, giving her her medication because she's ill, but she's going to be well. Um, We had to walk. We had to make sure she was, you know, fed and whatnot. Anyway, that's what I've been doing this morning. I got a dog. Well, that's nice. It is nice. It's a distraction. I think that's genuinely good for health. I mean, I did get out and, like, walk today for, you know, half an hour just which is more than I've done voluntary any voluntary walking in six months. Oh so. gosh, then it's this is especially <laughs> therapeutic for you. Yeah. So yes, that's my big announcement, Jim. I have acquired a dog to care for in an effort to stabilize my day to day. And because you love the dog, it sounds a little clinical, but you you felt some affection for this creature that needed a home. That's really kind of you. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean... Except praise. Hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of... Uh-oh. Who is that? Little no-name? Oh, my God. That's the first bark I've heard from her. Oh, maybe she heard my voice. No, I don't think it's about you. Anyway, here's the thing, Jim. Outside of my personal sphere of affection, cases are spiking and... I want you to tell me about it. Do you understand why? Um, yeah. Well, partly for, I think, the reasons we've we've outlined before. You know, economies are reopening. People are going back to school. People are going into restaurants. People are getting fatigue of distancing and masking. Some places are still doing great. New York's still doing great. But cases on the whole across the nation are moving up really quickly. We're at 61,000 as of yesterday, nearing what would be a record high nationally in terms of number of cases and it's rising really in places where they haven't been hit hard before 
Do we know why? Like, is it, uh, uh, I know that economies are opening back up, but is it also like schools? Is it weather related? It, it's a combination of all that stuff. And I think complacency and fatigue too. And having the president saying it's not a big deal and going around not wearing a mask and having outdoor rallies where people are gathered closely together, just sending these signals of like, it's going to go away. Yeah, but I mean, in fairness to everyone, I mean, I myself have loosened up quite a bit. Yeah, I think over the last couple of months just to try to live. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm wearing masks, I'm distancing and everything, but I am like, you know, I'm taking way more risks than I did in March. Yeah. I think that is normal with any health risk, right? There's a sort of you you get acclimated to the presence of something and yeah, uh almost 900 people died um on Monday. Uh, that is last, the last number I saw. And we get used to that because that's kind of the way it's been. And it's not so novel a threat anymore, just like car accidents. and Right. You get you get used to this sort of background of a problem. Yeah. but And so we you become more complacent, especially that seems to be happening in places that have not been hit hard yet. You know, rising cases. There's a field hospital in... Um, in Wisconsin, cases rising in, in North Dakota really quickly. A lot of red yeah. states, a lot of places that just have been spared for various reasons. Yeah. Well, I will say being in Texas, just from personal experience, I do think it's stra- it's been interesting to be here for after having spent the spring in New York because it feels like the sort of instinctual fear <laughs> that I have you know, around physical spaces and people and masks and stuff like people here don't have as a rule. Yeah. Like it's just, I mean, it's more laid back in general always, but I really notice that like my behavior and instincts are much more paranoid than most people around me. Yes. Well, you're coming from a place that lost 30,000 people in the spring. We, yeah. I mean, I understand why yeah, I'm having okay. that reaction, but I'm also like, <laughs> yeah. I, I also can totally see how if you didn't go through that experience, it would be hard to muster the same kind of like intensive paranoia. Absolutely. The more times you you hang out with people and no one got sick, like that personal experience is strong. So yeah. all these things yeah. coming together, you know, people are going to be having to spend more time in, indoors and having to reopen businesses and get crowds into restaurants and bars and salons and wherever else. I mean, religious gatherings, all these things kind of coming back to life. All of this is happening, though, at a time where, I, I mean, in the in the spring and summer, we had a situation where we had to l- lock down. But at least, like in March, Congress had passed this, like, huge relief package. It ended up helping a lot of people who had to be out of work. It ended up helping a lot of businesses that needed that were having, you know, cash flow problems, obviously, because they had to shut down. But that ran out a couple months ago. And now we're in a situation where we're heading into the fall with this new spike. And we don't have that economic backstop. Yeah, that is what's really concerning. So a lot of people won't get to here. make the choice. Yeah, we had this pretty widespread, actually pretty bipartisan move to shut things down, um, get people money. It might have seemed chaotic at the time, but there was actually relatively <laughs> swift and a movement and agreement. And Yeah, it was that moment where it was like, wow, we still can do things as a country. Like, yeah. We can actually get something done if it's necessary. Yeah. It was remarkably swift comparatively to how we do most things. And we have far more cases right now than we had back in March when we passed the first stimulus package. 
How many cases do we have a day right now? About 60,000? 60,000 or so, yeah, on average for the last week. And what was it back then? I believe we were in the 20s. Of course, we were not testing a lot. Catching everything, Um, right, right. So we don't know exactly, but it was, you know, if we're going just off of our sense of the scope of the problem, it was a lot smaller then, and yet we mobilized and passed uh, multi-trillion dollar relief packages within weeks, and people mostly stayed at home. Now the problem is completely different. It's actually more widespread. There are more cases, and yet there's less urgency to act. I've been having this feeling like it's like a slow motion train has been headed toward us for months, and like we're on the tracks, and we like could totally get off. There's plenty of time. We have everything we like need to just get off. But now like the train is here and we're just like beating each other up on the tracks instead of getting out of the way. Yeah. What that um, tortured analogy is meant to say is like, we've known this is coming and now it's here. We have all the tools we need to fix it and we're not doing it. And I don't understand why. Yeah. Democrats and Republicans seem to acknowledge that funds are necessary in order to keep people from losing their homes and their businesses and to allow people to feed their families. And yet it's not happening. So I don't know. There hasn't been a payment since July. Federal unemployment. Yeah. There hasn't been a federal unemployment payment since July. Not only has the federal relief expired, but many, you know, people who lost their jobs in March, it's now been six months. And in a lot of states, unemployment benefits run out after six months. So we're facing this like sort of onslaught of crises all happening at the same time, spike in cases, weather getting worse, hard to be outside. Federal relief has been gone for a couple months. Now state relief might be running out for quite a bit of people. And the Senate is refusing to act two weeks before an election. It just, it feels insane. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. We should talk to someone who can tell us what's going on. Great. Um, Who do you have lined up for us today, Kevin? (laughs) Well, Kevin, um, who knows all of this much better than we do, has suggested the perfect person that we should talk to. Diane Whitmore-Schanzenbach is a professor at Northwestern. She's the director of the Institute for Policy Research. She's also the former director of the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institute. Basically, she is an economist who focuses on poverty and the social safety net with a special focus on children and food insecurity. Basically, she knows exactly what's going on. And I I mean, not only I think does she know how bad this is, but hopefully she'll be able to help us understand why when the solution is so obvious, nothing is being done. Hi, this is Catherine. Hey, this is Jim. Hi. You sound good. Could you tell me what the weather's like over in Illinois? Oh, it's miserable. Uh, mm. <laughs> here in Chicago, it's rainy, it's cold. Um, we're about to go back under lockdown. It's, uh, it's a real mess out here in oh. middle America. Well, um, the audio of that sounds good. The content, I'm sorry. <laughs> Less good. Content exactly. is bad, yeah. If you could uh, <laughs> focus on the positive. We're an upbeat show. We don't like to uh, bring people down. Uh, (laughs) how's that working for you right now (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I hadn't heard about the latest in Chicago. There are, are looming shutdown measures. Yeah, the governor last night ordered a bunch of the collar counties, but not where we live, to um, shut back down their restaurants. But the mayor keeps hinting, you know, that kind of we're next. Mm. Uh, and I've got a couple of kids who are um, in school physically for a couple of hours a week. And so it will be a, it'll be really sad if we lose that. Yeah. Before we dive in, could you tell me a little bit about just like what you focus on and why? Sure. I'm an economist who studies anti-poverty policies, especially as they relate to children. And during COVID, I've really shifted my focus to trying to understand the nature of the hunger and food insecurity spike that we've seen and also how the government's response is helping ameliorate some of the harms being done to kids right now. How do you, why, why do you study this? Why, why did you pick this as your area of focus? Oh, I basically, when I was in college, I thought, you know, maybe I wanted to go into social work or something like that to help people. And I took Econ 101 and I realized I'd be much more, just it would be a better fit if I could use math to help people instead. And so I sort of got hooked on economics and helping the poor through policy back in college. And it's been a wild ride, especially these last couple of months. Yeah. I love the idea of social work through math. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, let's get into that. I think one of the things that, uh, you know, everybody's following in the news, right? But I, I think one thing I've had a hard time grasping is the scale of the problem we're facing right now. Is there a way that you can make it? Uh, just give me some sense of that. Like, how, how do you describe it in a way that people can understand how big this problem is? So I think one way to think about it is through access to food that families have. Mm-hmm. And we've got two broad measures of that. One is called food insecurity. And that's the idea that families don't have enough money to buy the foods that they want to eat. Um, sometimes it means hunger. And sometimes it means, you know, we've switched and we can't buy fresh fruits and vegetables anymore. And we've got to, you know, shift to, you know, cheaper foods. And what we've seen is um, that the rate of food insecurity especially among families with kids, have skyrocketed during COVID. And I think the best estimates are that the numbers have tripled since Mm -hmm. COVID. It used to be around 10%. Now it's around 30%. Three out of 10 people with kids are food insecure right now. Wow. And then we can also shift and think about even more dire measures of that. You know, that's a broad measure. We can think about um, people reporting that they don't have enough to eat. And similarly, we've seen levels of people in the United States not having enough to eat that are unconscionable. They're higher than anything we've seen on record. I just pulled the most recent numbers, which came out this morning, and it looks like 14% of people report to the Census Bureau that over the last, you know, first half of October, they sometimes or often don't have enough to eat in their house. That's a lot of kids. And we know, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't take a scientific study to underscore the importance of kids eating, right? Um, it's really important that they grow, that they develop, that they grow their brains, et cetera. And lacking access to enough food is just one of the most basic things that, you know, we should be providing yeah. in a time like this. I can vouch for that. In medical school, we did learn that kids need food. <laughs> as I, as I, I'm going to ignore Jim and ask you as I feel it, as I'm listening to you, like rage is welling up inside of me. Wh- why is this happening? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
when it comes to kids, you know, there are two big things that have shifted. One is schools and the other is family money that allows them to buy food. The question of schools is hard, right? We need to get the virus under control and, you know, there's all sorts of moving parts. That's a hard problem to solve. What is not a hard problem to solve is feeding people. We can give them money. We can give them food stamps, what are, it's now called the SNAP program. There's a lot of just very straightforward policy solutions that could be implemented. Now, I should be quick to say that, you know, we've done some of those. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the pandemic EBT program, which provides families money for school meals that they missed. That we've been able to study and we can show that it reduces food hardship as experienced by kids. That's a really good program. We were worried that Congress wasn't going to reauthorize it, but sort of in the nick of time, they decided that they would reauthorize it through this year. And so that's helping. But what's staggering is these numbers would be even worse if it weren't for what we're already doing. Mm -hmm. Just fundamentally, this is not hard to solve. It just takes money. So before we get into that, can you just tell me about what, like how much did the CARES Act help? So that's a hard question to answer because, you know, so much other stuff was going on with the economy at the same time. It's, it's hard to know how much worse things would be if it weren't for the CARES Act. But we can say that they made some really smart policy decisions, right? That initial boost to unemployment insurance, that extra $600 a week, really made a big difference. Um, Another policy change that they made was they um, increased SNAP benefits to people who weren't already getting the maximum benefit. And they also gave states, this is not very exciting, but boy, it makes a difference on the ground. They gave states flexibility to concentrate only on enrolling new families who were newly eligible for SNAP and not sort of processing, you know, renewals and things like that. So the CARES Act, I think, did a lot of good. You know, we have done some work. I wrote a paper for the Brookings Institution that tried to understand, you know, given how much we've spent, why is there still so much suffering? Mm -hmm. I think we came up with three reasons. The first is that aside from that unemployment insurance bump, The rest of the benefits just weren't all that generous. The second was many of the benefits came with delays. And you remember sort of at the Mm -hmm. beginning, you know, people had to really wait to get their unemployment insurance. Um, And then the third is that there are a lot of holes in our safety net. So, for example, a lot of families that are suffering food insecurity and hunger didn't lose their jobs, but they lost income anyway. So they lost shifts or they lost gigs. But because they didn't lose their job, in most places, they're not getting unemployment insurance. They're just having to weather the shock without any additional public benefits. So that's the CARES Act. But the CARES Act, I mean, what's the situation we're in right now, given that the CARES Act, many of those provisions have expired and the federal unemployment is out? Um, What do we need now? And what's happening? Yeah, boy. Um, So I thought you wanted to be optimists. Boy, I've had uh, nothing but pessimism uh, coming your way. Uh, No, that's not quite true. So the one piece of good news is that over the last couple months, the unemployment rate has come down more than most of us expected it to. And so that's good news. And, you know, we want the unemployment rate to come down. Of course, I think everybody's worried that if we have a big new wave of COVID, we'll see that spike back up. Uh, But certainly we need something um, coming from Congress. And of course, it's been very frustrating as someone who studies 
the amount of hardship that the poor are facing to see so much congressional sort of log jam and inaction. Uh, but I think, you know, we need a couple of things. We need um, more unemployment insurance top up. I'm not sure if it needs to still be at $600, but it has to be something. A lot of people think $400 is maybe the right um, amount there. To be sure, I think it's a no brainer that we should be increasing the amount of SNAP benefits. During the Great Recession, we increased them by 15%. That was a very effective policy, both in terms of stimulating the economy and in terms of reducing hardship. We're seeing so much hardship that it just, it really does seem like a no-brainer that we should be spending that money. We're spending actually precious little of relief payments aimed at the poor, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And then of course, you know, as somebody who studies kids, I would argue that states really do need additional resources so they don't have to cut school spending. As you may know, many states are under balanced budget requirements. So when you get hit with an economic shock like this, the budget gets balanced on the backs of kids and other vulnerable populations. What's really challenging for me to try to understand is it looks like we're not on the cusp of a deal in Congress. So what happens when state programs run out of money? I think what happens is they make big cuts. You know, we learned during the Great Recession, which of course was a was a terrible economic shock at the time, but has been really dwarfed by this one, that you know states had to cut back on school spending, kids' test scores were harmed, kids went to college at lower rates, et cetera. I mean, so basically what we're doing here is eating our seed corn, right? By taking away investments in development of human capital. Mm we're going to make the the damage to the economy last for much longer because these kids will never recover. They'll permanently have lower levels of human capital. So this is bad even if you do not care about humans, basic needs, uh, benevolence, these sorts of moral arguments for why, uh, you know, people should have food. If you just care about the economy and just love America for... For its growth rate. Absolutely. Right. This, you know, um, making sure that kids have enough to eat, which is good for their health and, and development. And also, you know, schools are adequately resourced will help our economic growth rate you know, for decades to come. Not to be like a annoyingly righteous, but like, isn't it weird that we feel like we have to make that argument? Like that we even have to couch it in those terms. We've done this a lot throughout this pandemic. Jim and I have talked about this a lot. And we're like, even if you don't care about human beings and basic morality, there's still an argument. Like, why do we It'll be good why for do the we stock do that? Market. I agree with you. And I think that, you know, as somebody who does a lot of these sorts of calculations about, you know, we can frame part of this as an investment in the future. I'm always quick to say, but that's not the reason we should do it. It's morally wrong for so many kids in the United States to not have enough to eat. And we should do something because we're members of society. Yes. Why are we not doing something? Yeah. So I would say that, um, you know, I can speak here in Chicago. We've seen overwhelming generosity with food banks and food pantries. People have opened their wallets and they see the important work that's being done and they say, you know, I want to help out with that. And so I do think, you know, many people are responding, but in order to address a problem of this magnitude, 
we really do need government solutions. And it is a puzzle to me why you know, so many in Congress aren't willing to direct resources toward this. If the problem is straightforward, people are hungry, and the solution is straightforward, we need to give people money and food and we have it, what am I missing? I've spent a lot of time trying to understand the same, uh, and I had a lot of conversations with uh, with others who are even closer to the ground uh, politically. The best I can come up with is that there's a either lack of, of understanding that things are as bad as they are or a lack of belief. Many people can tell themselves Oh, the reason that the lines are so long at food pantries is because the food is free. That doesn't seem to accord with experience of, of me or anybody that I know who's ever you know, worked in, in, in those, those situations. But I think there's something you know, deeply cynical and there's something about American sort of ethos that says, you know, kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think there's a sort of willful disbelief that no, the economy is that bad right now. We need, you know, that's the best I can do. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I, it doesn't seem like there's a satisfying answer. No, I, I wish there were. <laughs> um, a lot of times when we study the economy, we think about dollars and I, many of us are trying to shift more of that to, well, we should also think about people. And you know, when we think about the toll in terms of human lives that this recession and pandemic is taking, I just think it's unconscionable. And we should be responding with, mm -hmm. with the policies that we've got, you know, in alleviating this hardship. We need a relief bill, you know, that's serious and, you know, will help get us through the next stage of this pandemic and the recession. Right. I have been worried about the, the next stage quite a bit just from you know perspective of viral spreading with weather getting colder people moving indoors schools reopening and needing to reopen you know traditionally the flu spikes in winter it's just the, the nature of the way respiratory viruses spread we should expect to see this surge that we are just beginning to see right now so when you talk about you know chicago being asked to shut down what does that even look like when people are hitting the final weeks of unemployment i mean how how bad could this get if Congress continues to not have a deal? I mean, we are already so far out of, you know, any sort of normal experience that we've ever had. It's hard to know how bad it could get. You know, I think over the last couple of months, there was this sort of modest good news that the unemployment rate was coming down. Um, so we were, that was very exciting. But if we see that unemployment rates spike again because of the virus and we don't see more relief payments come out, I mean, you know, we've already seen food insecurity essentially triple. I don't know how much further it can go, yeah. but I think it could be really bad. I mean, it is already really bad. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it is. But then, you know, how do you even tell people to shut down or not, not go to work when they just can't if these payments are not there for them. I mean, I'm worried about that from a viral spreading standpoint. You know, you you just can't. The shutdowns will not be effective. They will be impossible. People don't have this safety net. Yeah, I agree. Except that you know, if the work disappears, right? If the hotels are closed, if the restaurants are closed, 
you know, there's nowhere to go. That too, yeah. And so it's just going to make human beings suffer more. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> we do have billions of pounds of cheese. Oh, do we? Yeah. The the national stockpile of cheese. Do you not know? <laughs> Maybe this is one of my we have enough we have four point three pounds of cheese per person in a stockpile. The government started buying it in the eighties and uh we still produce way more dairy than we can ever ever use. So we just store the cheese. This is you know, I'm trying to think outside the box because it sounds like we we've hit a wall here. You know, um to be sure, uh, you know, we've seen, um, you know, the government increase its commodities program, sort of giving things like cheese and milk and, you know, other staples to food banks and food pantries. Yeah. And that is for sure, that is welcome relief. But as an economist, I just have to remind everyone that it is much less efficient to give goods to an intermediate, you know, intermediate group that then has to give them out again, mm -hmm. that's less efficient than giving people resources to go to their grocery store and buy food. Right. And so, you know, the, the cheese stockpile where, you know, we maybe we'll have to you know dig into it a little bit more, but that shouldn't be our primary strategy. Yeah. We'll let you go in a second, but I, can I ask you one question that I, would, I wish I'd asked you earlier? What is the argument against doing this? Is there any legitimate argument against this level of government spending that would be required? Is, as an economist, is the deficit a problem? Is the economy in a vulnerable place where like big government spending could cause downstream effects? Like what, is there any economic rationale for not doing this? I mean, to be sure, we need to worry about the deficit at some point in, in the future, but now is not the time. You know, we are in essentially an unprecedented crisis. The whole role of government right now should be to make this recession as shallow and as quick as it can possibly be. And we know that, that spending is going to help on that. Now, of course, we'll be quick to add, because of the nature of the virus, we don't think we're going to have a real recovery until we get the virus under control. This isn't just, you know, sort of your grandfather's recession where we can just spend more and, you know, have some multipliers. A lot of what's holding the economy back is that people can't go out. You know, I've seen sort of arguments from the other side, you know, that there's concern about moral hazard that, you know, by bailing out states that maybe have been less frugal with their budgets, we're incentivizing bad behavior in the future. You, you can make that argument, but given the magnitude of the crisis and you know, the amount of human suffering and lack of investment that's going to result, you know, I just don't buy it. Yeah, it's just not the time. It's not the time. In the future, we really do need to get our budget back in alignment, but not right now. I tell myself that all the time. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for explaining this to us, that there is no reason this isn't, sounds like it's frustrating to you as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, how are you going to get through the winter? I haven't even thought about it. Oh, yeah, no. that's a good question. Uh, you know, so we, we've, we've got an outdoor fire pit and a lot of warm clothes. And good. I think, you know, we're going to keep making those kids go outside for as long as we can possibly stand it. Yeah. Well, good luck. <laughs> well, we'll let you go. Thank you for 
participating in this and, yeah, uh, thank you for and breaking this down for us. It's just a puzzle. Like, act, right? It's not rocket science. Yeah. And it's it's just unbelievable. Um, so I hope you can make that upbeat. Like you said, I know I know you like to have an upbeat. Oh, no, I, I was just kidding about that. We have an extremely depressing podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'll have to uh, I'll have to start listening. I uh Oh, please do. Jim is always trying to lighten the mood unsuccessfully. Yeah, I try. <laughs> uh, usually when I'm um, up in the middle of the night <laughs> with insomnia, I listen to I either doom scroll on Twitter or I listen to sad podcasts. So I'll add you. <laughs> oh, great. We were rated top 10 sad podcasts of um, 2020. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Jim well, wishes we had gotten any, any, any ratings at all. Um, no, thank you so much. This is really, really helpful and thank you for talking about this i i'm like amazed that this isn't front page all the time it really feels like it's strangely just like unfolding with no marking of it i guess that's a lot of things that are happening right now but all right well we'll let you go and use your your precious hours without children uh to work i know (laughs) okay take care bye thank you so much (laughs) bye-bye okay sometimes our podcast is sad because Lots of things are sad right now, but we did get a very nice voicemail last week. We actually succeeded in making at least one person happy for a brief moment. Did you hear this voicemail? Yeah, I did. I I loved hearing it. Here, let's play it. Hey there. I uh, love the show and uh, was super excited this week when I heard the outro by Karen Pollitz's husband uh, playing the drums. It uh, brightened my mood and definitely was uh, a lift up. And I just was calling because it would be so cool and such a mood lifter every week uh, to have some music, uh, an intro, an outro, uh, an interlude from Dr. Jim when uh, he first said no. I thought of uh, you next uh, or yeah, the guest or somebody. Love the podcast. Thanks for the, the music and the uplifting little outro there. That was fun. Well, I don't know if I... Uh... I don't know if Jim. All right, you've been waiting for this. All right, I'll do it. (laughs) Are you going to play, Jim? Well, I can't do it right now. Oh, you're going to do it at home? Yeah. And then we're going to play it at the end. Yeah. I truly cannot wait to hear. Truly. Okay. Good. Really, I think it's going to be so good. Oh wow! There's nothing I love more than listening to non-professionals play music it yeah. really is great yeah okay well can't wait to hear cool awesome okay see ya wait before you go and do your uh do well maybe your your music can score this too just saying this show was produced by kevin townsend kevin townsend produces this show every week you can write us at social distance at the atlantic.com or if you want to um encourage jim to do other things maybe things that would be very embarrassing to him you can call us at 202-642-6487 um, and support the atlantic at theatlantic.com slash support us look into our cheese stockpile it's real okay bye bye
So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.